So I'm going to talk about quite a lot of microanatomy of the brain. Um, so although we have some nice pictures of uh, animals and human beings interacting, uh, in fact, a lot of what I'm talking about is anatomy. Uh, but the idea is that um, those people who are interested in, say, the evolution of brain size or the development of larger brains and supporting uh, functions uh, that might be associated with having large brains, um, hopefully you should be interested in the basis of that, which is the microcircuitry. After all, the larger brain is built up of all its smaller parts. Um, and so we can see here comparisons between chimpanzees and humans interacting. And I'm going to talk a little bit about social cognition and uh, other measures of intelligence, more sort of abstract measures of intelligence as well, perhaps. Um, but we're relating it to the, the difference between these, these brains here. This is a, a human brain. Here's the front of it. It has this highly gyrified or folded surface. Here's the back. So we're looking at the left hemisphere, uh, side-on view. This would, the, ear, the ears would be sort of over here. Uh, and this is a chimpanzee. Uh, brain, which you can see is much smaller, but it has a similar highly folded uh, structure. And you can sort of broadly make out some of the um, equivalent regions across those two, two brains. So as I say, we, we build the larger whole from these smaller parts. And very early on in the, uh, brain development, the cells migrate out to the surface of the brain. Uh, this is the very earliest stages. And as they do so, they stack up on top of each other. And the result is what you see here. This is a section of brain material, very thinly sliced, about 30 microns thick, about 30 thousandths of a millimeter thick. Um, and what you're looking at is a, a stain which stains the, the cell bodies. So the blue dots are individual cell bodies. They're individual neurons, a large number of neurons. There's also these other types of cells called glia. Um, but hopefully you can see a sort of streaky appearance. The top of the cortex would be up here somewhere and the bottom down here. And this streaky appearance is this columnarity. Um, but the columns are composed not just of the cell bodies that you see here, but as represented diagrammatically here, also by the kind of input and output parts of the circuit. Um, so you've got these dendrites and axons which are feeding in and out of these cells. So it's as if this is each one of these mini columns uh, constitutes a kind of micro circuit. It has an, in, it has an input, um, various process, processing can, can happen here amongst the cell bodies, and then there's an output from there. And the idea is that these which are about on average around 50 microns across, again 50 thousandths of a millimeter. They sort of fit together into these larger units called macro columns, and those, as you can see, can tessellate to form a surface. It has a depth, the cortical depth is three to four millimeters perhaps. Um, but as you can see, you build up this uh, large surface, and the idea is that that's the basis of building larger brains in terms of evolution, just by having more units, if you like, but also the spacing be between them will expand. Um, uh, and that happens also in the development of any individual. Uh, from birth, the brain goes on developing and getting larger in size, and we think that's, that involves an expansion of these uh, microcircuits. Uh, and this, this is a critical measure that I'm going to talk about quite a lot, which is the, the, the spacing, the sort of center-to-center -center spacing or, or the width of these mini-columns. So once again, here's some slices of brain material, post-mortem human brain. Uh, everything for the very large part of this talk is going to be referring to post-mortem brain material, because that's the only way we can look at this level of detail. But I'll make a comment right at the end about how we hope future technologies will lead us on to be able to see this kind of thing in the future in, in vivo. Um, but here are some uh, pieces of post-mortem brain. Uh, you can see here a close-up view. And then we can zoom in, if you like, on, a, on one particular area. This is auditory co a cortex in the area of where Wernicke's language area is in the left hemisphere, which is going to come up. Um, and computer software, um, which has been developed by colleagues in the States, can be used to identify the neurons, kind of join them up, if you like. Use various statistical analysis are used in order to determine the center of the column, the cell-dense center. And then, the, then there's these cell-sparse regions in between. These are represented by the red lines, if you can see those. And so we can derive this measure of a mini-column width, or alternatively, center-to-center -center spacing of these columns.
So then, if we're interested in what this spacing is doing, in particular in the development of an individual, how, how the, the spacing um, results in expansion, this, the spacing, if you like, expands, and that results in the expansion of the cortex size, what we're really interested in is, is, is the stuff going on in between the cell bodies, which is where these, um, these synapses occur, where, where a lot of the connections are happening. So this is supposed to be, this is a cartoon, here's a cell body here, and this is a dendrite, and this little spark of light is supposed to be a synapse firing off. Uh, providing the connections between uh, inputs and outputs, if you like, connections between cells. And because this is a plastic system, a dynamic system, uh, these, this structure will change, and therefore we get, if you like, an expansion of filling out of that space between the cells and columns, uh, which reflects something about how that connectivity is being modified over time. And so you can see, for example, in the course of development, as I say, it's a dynamic process. If we look at a human fetus, 28 weeks this is, these are the cell bodies here. You can see them really tightly packed in um, and very little space between them. But hopefully you can see this sort of streaky appearance to that. They are stacked up in this, in this columnar fashion. Here's a nine-year-old human. And you can see that, again, the column, columnarity, but greater spacing between those. And then this is a 67-year-old human, uh, and the spacing is, is at maximum. In fact, it may already be on the decline slightly, because we see uh, in old age, we have a sort of shrinkage that then occurs. Um, so we think this is all related, to, obviously, to life events um, uh, and dynamic processes which take place, and learning which takes place, and then uh, subsequent aging in later life. So what we'd like to do is try and relate it to cognitive ability in some way. Um, uh, and because, as I've mentioned, there is this dynamic process where things change, and particularly with aging, uh, we know that things change. Uh, these are some, uh, some other researchers who've looked at uh, rhesus macaque monkeys, um, and they've assessed them as they were getting older. They've assessed them in terms of uh, their ability at various cognitive tasks, so they derive an overall cognitive impairment uh, index, and then they have a measure of this columnarity, um, the strength or... or, or um, sort of spacing between the columns. And you can see that the strength of these columns, the columnarity declines uh, uh, in association with uh, increasing impairment in cognition. Uh, so there's a sort of, there's a first pass at saying, well, there's, a, there's clearly a relationship here in some way. So these, these animals um, would have been uh, uh, sacrificed sometime shortly after they took these, uh, this range of cognitive uh, tests. So we see an association, but what's interesting is that these researchers since 2004 have gone on to show that, in fact, uh, the kind of cognitive impairment, because you can do different tests, um, uh, is, is the, the relationship with the columns is selective to the region of the brain associated with that particular cognitive ability. So if they do another test um, where they don't see uh, the same kind of microcolumnar changes, there's, there's no association. So we try to link this into what we can see in humans, which is in many ways a lot more difficult because um, we have to obviously take what we get um, uh, and, uh, in fact, we're very lucky in Oxford because we have this large collection of brain material uh, from people who've signed up for studies on aging and dementia. Um, and these people have been studied at, at best at six monthly intervals. They've had all sorts of neuropsychological testing done. So, uh, as a result, we're able to try to relate um, the kinds of measurements that we can get from the post-mortem brain because we have to, have to wait till these people have died before we can obviously see at this micro scale. Um, try and relate that to the kinds of measures that, that were extracted from the neuropsychology before they died. Um, now, uh, this just is to illustrate that we do see these changes in columnarity. Now, would anyone like to... There's three groups here. There's a mildly impaired group, and then there's a severely impaired group uh, who have quite severe dementia, advanced dementia, and then there's a healthy control, normally aging population. Um, and there's, a, there's two panels for each group, so... 
there's one of these one of these pairs, this one or this one or this one, has Alzheimer's disease. Can anyone tell me which one they think it'd be? Top, bottom. top, bottom. It's a mess. <laughs> the bottom one is a mess, indeed. So that is Alzheimer's disease, exactly. So you've got a sort of, you know, cells have been plucked out. Effectively, cells have died off. Um, but you've got a sort of chaotic uh, organization of cells here. Um, now, some people think, actually, that this, this, this looks chaotic. But that's because individual cells, some of these are really robust, healthy, round cells. And they really stand out to the naked eye. Um, but what you've got, actually, are quite wide columns. And there is still this columnar streaky appearance. And here they get more densely packed, but there isn't the cell loss. And that's the intermediate group. So this is a healthy... Uh, cortex, and this is the intermediate group. Clearly, it comes out in the statistics and the, and the computer analysis. Yes? Can I interrupt the question? The, um, you're saying that uh, there's restructuring, hmm. um, dendritic um, yeah. restructuring all the time in response to experience and memory. Indeed, yeah. Um, presumably, this means that the memories that we have from a long time ago have to be reinforced uh, frequently. Uh, yes, well, yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's true. And if you remodel, remodeling in, in response yeah. to experience, then it must bear a relation to that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So it would be different uh, structurally. Yes, absolutely. So there's a, there's a sense in which there is a refinement uh, that goes on. So that, I mean, if, if one is going to draw a comparison between, and this is fairly broad arm-waving stuff, I guess, between a memory that's a really strong memory and the connectivity at the synaptic level, then you'd expect those to be pretty fixed and well-established well connections. And it's the, if you like, it's the other ones that are freer to move or shift or change that are more likely to be modulated and modified in, in relation to other experiences. But there is a kind of refinement, and it might relate in some ways to what we see with normal aging when you think that people actually start to increasingly exhibit routinized behavior. You know, they tend to start to follow the same routines and get quite rigid in their thinking, which, of course, is something we all have to look out for. Um, so that might be something to do with the fact that actually there's this sort of, sort of shrinkage and loss of the, of, the, of the spare material. So it's really just pared down, if you like, to the, to the really hard connections. Um, so this is, an, this is an attempt to look in, in our human subjects and relate some cognitive scores, some cognitive measures, um, to the data that we have on this co these micro columns, these micro circuits. Um, now, briefly, what I've just got in the corner here is an illustration of the way pathology tends to progress in Alzheimer's disease, um, but in fact in normal aging. So many of us uh, in the room may already have a certain buildup of the plaques and tangles, the little bits of pathology in the brain that, that, that start off in this area of the medial temporal lobe here in the brain. Um, but we're not likely to experience symptoms until this pathology is spread in over many years. There's 27 years gap that is illustrated here, for example, to these areas of association cortex, these other areas of associative cortex that are integrating information. So it looks as if you're only likely to start sort of experiencing, experiencing symptoms and, and, uh, and for these changes to be noticeable once the pathology is spread. And then, of course, with uh, more severe changes and wider spread, um, you, you, you suffer with Alzheimer's disease. So we have these three groups again represented here. Um, these are the control subjects, these are the mildly impaired people, and these are the people with uh, quite severe Alzheimer's disease. Um, and this is mini-column width on this uh, y-axis. So you can see that in control subjects, you have the widest um, mini-column spacing. And then, as I've already described to you, it kind of shrinks um, as you get more impaired, or indeed with normal aging as well. I'm not showing all the data here. Um, but there's two regions which are illustrated here. This is a this is this area which is affected early on, and this is prefrontal cortex, this highly associative cortex where we think a lot of the executive high cognitive functions, if you like, uh, are happening. And you can see that in the mildly impaired group, actually, uh, the minicoms remain pretty healthy. 
which would fit with this sort of picture, right? Um, that it's, it's only late on in the disease process that this frontal area is starting to be um, really severely affected. Um, so we can see a sort of differentiation between regional effects in the mini-column uh, organization. And then we also see a difference in terms of the cognitive scores that are affected. So this is uh, a standard memory and cognition score, which is used to monitor the progression in dementia. And of course, it, in, that, in that respect, it should be sensitive to the very early changes, which indeed it, which indeed it is. So if you like, there's a correspondence, there's a close correspondence here between um, the structural change that we see in the brain and this cognitive measure here. But if we look at IQ, which is mentioned, of course, in the title, you can see that actually that remains stable. And we think that in particular these measures of IQ that we've got here uh, are related uh, to um, prefrontal cortex function in particular. And that is something that only drops off uh, late in the disease process um, uh, as indeed the, the, the structural anatomy only drops off, if you like. You only get that shrinkage of these microcircuits. Micro um, uh, later on. So there's an association, if you like, all the time here between, say, wider columns, more filled out microcircuits, and better function, higher cognitive function. Now, um, what about, if you like, uh, the normal healthy brain and, uh, and the relationship between uh, um, these sorts of microcircuits and other interesting aspects of uh, cognition. I'm going to talk about two aspects in particular, language and, um, and face processing, which I see as part of uh, social cognition, if you like. Uh, so some years ago, in fact, uh, there was a group that uh, have, have started looking at this mini-columnarity, and they were looking in the human planum temporale, um, which some of you may be familiar with, but it's uh, this famously asymmetrical area of the brain, which is associate part of Wernicke's area, so it's a language area of the brain, it's kind of located uh, around here. Um, this is a medial view actually, but it's, it's in this sort of location. Um, so it's posterior, it's auditory processing. Uh, and what they found, uh, and I'll read it out to you, is that only human brain tissue revealed robust asymmetry in two aspects of mini-column morphology, wider columns and more neuropil space, which are kind of two ways of saying very much what I'm illustrating is more or less the same thing, which is this wider spacing, a wider uh, spacing of that neuropil where the connections are made. Um, so there's a wider spacing on the left side, the left hemisphere, and this asymmetry was absent in both chimpanzees and uh, rhesus monkey brains. Um, so as you probably know, there is this lateralization, this famous lateralization of language. Language tends to be left hemisphere dominant. Uh, and the idea is that uh, these human beings are able to communicate with each other and understand each other um, because they have language, which is left hemisphere dom dominant, and they have this asymmetry of their, of their microcircuits, wider mini-columns in the left hemisphere, whereas this chap can't understand what's being said to him, not because he's got his fingers in his ears, but because he has symmetrical um, microcircuits or mini-columns. Um, and there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a range of data which supports the sort of... The sort of uh, lowest level of processing, of acoustic processing, which, which is used to build up some idea as to why there may be this asymmetry, there may be this bias. Um, and I'm not actually going to go into, the great, into great detail here. There's a group in Canada that have looked into, into um, these differences in acoustic signal and how that, that they have proposed this, this relates to the microcircuit structure and the spacing of microcircuits. But in essence, what they're saying is that the fine temporal structure of, a, of an acoustic signal, which is appropriate for um, uh, disambiguating sounds to do with language, so uh, interpreting uh, speech form, if you like, um, is, is that's uh, preferentially processed in the left hemisphere in this area, which has these asymmetrical mini-columns. And indeed, uh, the right hemisphere, there is a bias, but the bias is towards the spectral processing, which is kind of like the sound envelope, which we'd associate it to do with things like prosody um, and intonation in the voice. So people see these things as maybe emotional components, which are sort of superimposed on the, on the, on the language structure, the words that are said. So there's this right hemisphere bias, maybe more for that sort of thing, which 
which these people suggest is related directly to the underlying acoustic signal processing in these microcircuits. But it, it kind of scales up, perhaps, because what we see is that there, are, there is this left hemisphere dominance for, for word meaning. Um, uh, and uh, various experiments have been done. These are split brain patients, which have been investigated by Michael Gazzaniga. Um, and what you can do is, if you have, uh, well, if you have somebody with a normal corpus callosum, so the main track that connects the two hemispheres, information is able to pass back and forth perfectly satisfactorily. Which means that if you present, uh, in some experimental paradigm, if you present a word to the left of this dot, and therefore um, information in the, in the left visual field, which will go into the right hemisphere because of crossing over, then the word night effectively is seen in the, in, in the right hemisphere, but information can be passed to the left hemisphere, which we believe to be the output, if you like, because that's where Broca's area is, for saying the word right, night. I've seen the word night. Um, what uh, these experiments indicate is that people who have different degrees of lesion, of, of splitting of the hemispheres, if they have a partial splitting, for example, um, uh, they, they, they uh, exhibit different kinds of, uh, of, of problems with this process. So if there's a partial split, then the idea is that various distributed information is activated successfully in the right hemisphere, but it is not able to give the output of specifically that word night. So it's not, if you like, such focused information. So the word night comes in to the right hemisphere, and the, and the, and the, the subject responds, I've got a picture in my mind, but I can't say it. There are two fighters in a ring ancient, wearing uniforms and helmets, on horses trying to knock each other off. Knights, perhaps, he guesses. So effectively, is not really aware of having seen the word, but, but interprets it from the distributed associations that, that, that are um, communicated from the right hemisphere. Um, and then somebody who has a total hemisection that where, where the hemispheres are, are, are divided off because the corpus callosum is split entirely, um, reports uh, that they don't see anything whatsoever. So there's an idea that this asymmetry in language processing scales all the way up um, from that sort of acoustic fine level, those microcircuit, what we can see is maybe more being more directly linked to microcircuits uh, to this perhaps this larger scale. So now to move on to uh, uh, social cognition and I'm presenting uh, face processing and particularly emotional facial expression processing as, as, as the uh, example here. We're going to talk a little bit about humans and chimpanzees in processing conspecific faces. But what's interesting about face processing is that it is also lateralized. But in the case of faces, uh, it's lateralized to the right hemisphere, which is the converse of language, which is to the left. So, and just to add to the confusion, this is radiological convention, so actually these hemispheres are reversed. This is the top of the brain. This is the dividing line between the two. Here's the cerebe cerebellum beneath it and the skull around it. And this is the right hemisphere, which has higher activation when somebody is responding to a task requiring that they identify whether these are the same person or some kind of face recognition, face processing task, um, in contrast to the, to the left hemisphere, which has lower activation. And this is a, this is a very well-established uh, uh, finding. Uh, and this is the region of the brain that's responsible for this, the fusiform gyrus on the bottom of the brain, which I've colored in green, uh, so that you can identify it. And there's a fusiform face area in particular, which is, seems to be uh, selective for, for uh, dominant for processing faces. One of the things that's interesting, uh, uh, in relation to sort of so social cognition and social cognitive disability, such as uh, autism, um, but also this does occur in other in other disorders such as uh, schizophrenia, is that you see a, a loss of this uh, this activation uh, and a loss of this asymmetrical activation. So, in a variety of studies, this has been uh, um, replicated. That there's a hypoactivation of this area. So, this is this is a, a, again the right hemisphere bias in a normal control subject. You can see this area that's lit up processing faces, and this is somebody with autism. 
who is not seeming to, their brain is not seeming to respond in the same way. Um, uh, and I, I make this point because obviously it's interesting in terms of, uh, in terms of human interactions and how we think about social cognition and uh, deficits of social cognition, but in particular because one of the primary hypotheses about the basis of, for autism is related to the mini-columns, the microcircuits. Um, and the idea is that uh, these mini-columns are more numerous, smaller with reduced uh, neuropil space, this important connective space in the periphery. And probably the, the, leading, the leading concept of, of, of the basis, the neural basis for autism, uh, fits with this roughly this sort of model, where there's this very early overgrowth. So if you remember back to that slide I showed with those very densely packed small cells in early development, in the fetus, in fact, the idea is that, that you've got lots of those, too many of those, and they remain very densely packed. There's not enough sort of pruning back of those things. Um, uh, so you, remember, you, you have this very early overgrowth, and then possibly some kind of um, other decline following that point. But this, if you like, links the, links the, the idea of anomalies with, with, with some of these cognitive processes and the microcircuits that we see in the brain. Now, if we go on to, to, uh, uh, to look at uh, social cognition um, in, if you like, normal humans and uh, other species, what we're interested in is, remember, is, is considering following on from that study which looked at language and found that there were asymmetries which were unique so far to humans in the language area, this is now building up towards the idea of looking um, uh, for an, another function, another area of the brain which is associated with a different function but with this also lateralized. Um, so see if we can really pin down whether or not there's a relationship here between the asymmetry of these um, circuits and the function itself. Now of course chimpanzees do process faces like humans do so we can do a comparison there. Uh, whereas, of course, language is not, is, is not a great comparison because chimpanzees don't appear to have that kind of uh, uh, language processing. And then in answer to the question, well, do, chimp do chimpanzees process faces like humans do? Well, to some extent, we think yes, because they do show evidence for this holistic processing bias, which is what that right hemisphere bias seems to be for the, for the human uh, face processing area. Um, and this is just data, which I won't go into, which just shows that, um, if, if you like, there's a deficit uh, in, in, uh, in responses amongst chimpanzees when they're looking at faces that are upside down. And this, this face inversion effect is something we see very commonly in humans and is interpreted as evidence for this holistic processing, because if you look at a face upside down, you find it much more difficult to recognize it, and it's because you're used to this holistic processing, which should work when it's, it's the right way up. Um, uh, and so you can't sort of uh, look at these individual details, even though it's upside down, and process it with the same uh, degree of accuracy and speed. And chimpanzees have that same kind of problem. Uh, there have been five scans, as far as I'm aware, in total in the world of, 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 of chimpanzees trying to do a task like this. Um, and this is, these are the results. Um, this is the right, we're looking underneath the brain here, so this is the right side and this is the left side. And what we see is, of course, they're using the same kind of area, so that's very important. That establishes that not only are they processing faces, they're processing faces, as we've seen, somewhat like the w way we do, and also using the same parts of the brain, more or less. It's not clear, either statistically or even when looking at these, that they have um, this asymmetrical bias that humans seem to have. Possibly this individual does. There seems to be a bit more activation on the right side compared to the left, if you can see that here. I'm sorry, it's a very dark slide. Um, but there's, 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 there's not a clear indication of that. So that may be slightly different, but that perhaps plays into our hands because then we can look at that and, and potentially predict a difference uh, in asymmetry between humans and chimpanzees. So in summary then, this area of the brain represents something of a, of a, of a test case. Um, because as I say, in contrast to language, face processing is common to both species 
Um, it's lateralized to the right rather than the left, as language is, in humans at least. Um, and so the question is, do, do wider minicons relate to, this, to these differences of bias between the hemispheres? Because this would really pin down whether, it's, whether, whether it's in these microcircuits sort of scale up in the way that we seem to think they do, or we think they seem to. Um, now, these are the results. Here's some example of brain tissue. Here's a chimpanzee brain. Here's a human brain. If you could look at high magnification, you can see all these different types of cells here. You can see they're a bit smaller and more tightly packed uh, in, the, in the chimpanzee. Um, but, uh, but the results are interesting. And this is, a, this is a measure of asymmetry. So the zero line means no asymmetry, effectively symmetry. And we can see that for both measures of mini-column uh, spacing, and actually the size of these pyramidal neurons, these important excitatory neurons which are uh, connecting up um, and performing most of the processing, we see there's uh, symmetry effectively in, in chimpanzees, no difference from zero. Uh, whereas in humans there is an asymmetry. But what I have to tell you is that um, for both of these structures the asymmetry is leftwards, so again it's just like with language areas. So although the right hemisphere may be biased for processing the faces, um, structurally in this area it looks like the language area. So it has wider spacing on the left. So that, that perhaps represents a bit of a conundrum if you're thinking about it being to do with bias. You know, whichever hemisphere is, it has the bias, is dominant for the function, should have these wider columns. But we think that's not the case. The interpretation, after a bit of thought, um, is that probably it's to do with the type of processing. Because as I said, um, in the left hemisphere, this, this wide spacing of these units seems somehow to support this fine temporal structural analysis that the left hemisphere is biased for, whereas the right hemisphere, the close proximity of these processing units, these microcircuits, supports this kind of holistic face processing bias. So it's a holistic thing uh, in the right hemisphere versus, versus this sort of um, com looking at features or components. Um, and so the idea is that we can look at, here's the left hemisphere and here's the right hemisphere, and this is just to try and summarize some of these there have been many interpretations of the, of, the, of the broad difference in humans, at least, of these between the hemispheres, the sort of global processing in the right hemisphere, these distributed associations, like in that word, understanding the word night, um, uh, versus the, the, the very um, clear, fine-tuned phonological processing of the left hemisphere. And this is uh, not my own uh, hypothesis, but uh, others have put forward the suggestion of, of how, indeed, this relates to this um, distribution of these columnar units. So if we were looking down on them, um, uh, looking down on the surface, and, and effectively the surface is composed of these units sticking up at you, um, the idea is that they're more spaced out here on the left than they are on the right. Uh, and then for any, for any region of sort of coactive uh, uh, um, units, um, you're going to see more sort of overlap in, in terms of firing of coactive units here in the right hemisphere than the left. And the idea is this has to do with an integration of of, uh, of processing. So this holistic processing in the right hemisphere. So then that just, just to step back and, or come back to the question then, so, so if chimpanzees do process faces successfully as, as we think humans do, why are chimpanzees not asymmetrical? Well, the idea is perhaps that they have bilateral mini columns, narrow mini columns, because that's fine for this holistic processing of faces. Um, just like the human right hemisphere has the bias for that holistic processing. So the question really is, well, what's the left hemisphere doing in humans? Um, and one possibility is that humans are lateralized um, because they have this specialized word form recognition region very, in a, in a, very close by, actually, which is in the left hemisphere. Um, and that's maybe something that, that is, comes with uh, further development, so that um, when, you, it, when you can't see the individual parts of a word, but you see the, the broad outline of the word, you can already make a guess as to what it might be. 
Um, and the idea is that this is, this, is, this is specialized for word form processing. So this is one sort of possibility that there's this pervasive effect of language in the left hemisphere, which is associated with um, slightly different specialized functions in that part of the brain. Another possibility, which I think is a little bit more interesting, um, is that it has to do with um, categorization of, uh, of, of, of parts of some kind of abstract um, cognitive space. In this case, we're looking at facial expressions. Um, so uh, this is data that, that I've actually more or less borrowed from colleagues in, in the States, in Emory University. Lisa Parr has been doing um, quite a lot of work, and that previous work that I showed from the, the chimp scans, on uh, chimpanzees looking at different facial expressions amongst, uh, um, amongst um, conspecifics, but also with this sort of virtual representation so that you can control all the parameters you need to of, uh, of face expressions. And, uh, and when one does an analysis of, of, uh, of animals and humans responding to, to responding in tasks where they have to recognize facial expressions or categorize facial expressions. You see there's a sort of distribution um, uh, in, in a so-called face space. You can do this for other things like facial attractiveness and that sort of thing. People have, people have looked at a variety of different um, measures of face space and it's pretty well established in the, in the, in the psychology literature. Um, and the idea is that, for example, um, you've got in, in humans you get these prominent dimensions on which which, which uh, is the basis of the separation of, these, of the interpretation of faces. So happy faces are over here, and that's a positive um, uh, human emotion, and disgust faces are over here at the opposite extreme, and neutral is somewhere in the middle. And, and also you can go somewhere from, say, a sort of uh, passive, um, fearful or fearful response, submissive response, which is a fearful response, to this angry dominant response here uh, on this axis. So the idea is that, the, that in, in humans this is, there's a fairly clear separation, whereas in chimpanzees, partly we're not sure how to interpret some of these components of lip puckering as, as, uh, as Lisa Parr has, has defined it. But there does seem to be kind of less, um, less separation uh, of, uh, of these uh, dimensions such as um, valence, or, or indeed dominance. And may, maybe that's something to do with the fact that, uh, uh, that actually chimpanzees kind of do use those two in the same way. The ex a facial expression used in a positive manner is something to do with um, a dominant structure. Perhaps people here might be able to think about that and interpret whether or not that's true. Whereas in humans, it seems to be the case that we separate these components. And this is various statistics, which uh, I won't go into, which just illustrate that there is a sort of difference here and that humans do have this greater separation of dimensions. Uh, and I think that might have something to do with uh, uh, what the left hemisphere is, is doing in terms of separating components of signals. So let's think a bit. We're sort of working our way back to IQ and more high executive function. Um, let's think about d dimensional reasoning for a minute. Um, uh, because uh, there's good evidence from a variety of sources that uh, dimensions that are easily separated by adults, such as the brightness and size of a square, um, are treated as fused together for children. So children have difficulty identifying whether two objects differ on their brightness or size, even though they can easily see that they differ in some way. And this, uh, this fits with this model of, of increasing separation of dimensions and ability to separate dimensions and split, split problems, if you like, into their component parts um, with development. I'm just going to show a couple of videos which I think help to make the point, at least. Um, the idea is that this, there's a sort of developmental shift that happens uh, around age five in, in human beings. So this is a child who's under five years old. Now, do you think that this glass has more juice? 
this glass has more juice, or do you think that they have the same amount? That one has more. This one has more, and why do you think that this one has more? Okay, I'll skip ahead a little bit. So she thought that was quite magical that because it became taller, there was more stuff in it. I know the quality is not good here because it came off the internet. So I mean, this, these are a sort of famous set of experiments. Um, it's, it's, there are some complexities here. Obviously, clearly, and, and current research emphasizes actually the social complexity of this situation. Let me just pause it. That children um, are quite aware that there's a, there's a test of some sort going on, so they feel like there may be a trick question. There's, there's, there's sort of other levels of complexity going on here. But I think, nonetheless, we can use it at least to try and illustrate this point of separating. child is over five years old. So um, that's, that's neat, obviously, for me, because the, the, she's talking literally in terms of dimensions, separating width and height and this sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but the idea is that this actually, that, you know, this can work for more complex uh, factors. And as I say, you know, we're thinking about how it might work even more at an unconscious level when it come, when it, in, in terms of interpreting signals, such as interpreting face expressions. Um, I won't well particularly on this, except this is something to do with the underlying maths of it and the idea that um, the underlying metric of cognitive space, let me just turn this into, uh, can be different. And some of those statistics that I was um, showing you um, refer to the, to the better fit, depending on whether or not you use this, which involves integral dimensions where a change in x is usually associated with y, um, i.e. things correlate more, um, whereas here uh, this, this metric is, is, if you like, the more mature metric where you can, you can Clearly, clearly change things in one dimension separate from another. Um, and there's a lot of work that has happened in terms of um, uh, language and modeling semantic space. Um, so, so rather than just looking at, say, objects which have width and height, we're talking obviously about a much more complex um, representation uh, of, of, of objects or concepts. Um, but uh, it's quite well established that in, con in, in normal controls, uh, you can give them a task um, where they have to generate uh, animal names, and the order in which they do so reveals something about the underlying semantic structure. So if I asked you to, to give a list of animals now, obviously you'd read them off the board. 
Um, but, um, no, okay. but most of the time, uh, people will tend to start with um, um, dog and cat, and then, uh, and then sort of fan out from there, maybe to, the, to, to domestic larger animals, cow and sheep, and sort of, before they go off to the zoo, in their heads, if you like, um, and start to talk about these other kinds of animals. Uh, and, and, and as a result, statistically, you can pick out from the, from the, from the, from the data that you get from a whole uh, range of subjects, um, uh, patterns which, which reveal these kind of orthogonal dimensions, such as size of animals and domesticity. And also there's another dimension which tends often to come out, which is slightly separate again, which is sort of the dangerousness of the animals, that kind of thing. Um, and what we find in some, uh, in some disorders is that uh, actually those, those, that doesn't work so well. So this, in this case, for example, the small, large, the size dimension doesn't seem to be so clear because we have rabbit um, over here and we have elephant over here. Um, and this is one uh, quite famous study which sort of started a whole raft of studies which generally show some, some of this kind of thing to happen. So there's a disruption of that kind of dimensional organization uh, of semantic space, certainly in schizophrenia. Um, uh, and I won't go on to explain any more of these details unless anybody's interested later in discussion, but um, the broad interpretation of a whole variety of data from schizophrenia is that people, tend to ha people with schizophrenia tend to have these over-inclusive semantic categories. So there's a sort of overlap which, if, if, if you like, means that it, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a sort of spilling over from uh, small and large, small into large, and large into small, and so forth, which results in this, what, what, what we would perceive as being a, an abnormal uh, organization of semantic space. Uh, and lo and behold, when we measure mini-columns in either the face processing region of the brain or in, the re in one of the regions of the brain associated with semantic processing, which of course is what I'm interested in with regard to animal names, um, then we see um, uh, abnormalities in the mini columns, the microcircuit uh, organization. These are, elderly, these are older subjects, extending into elderly, and what we find is the normal aging effect in control subjects, so there's a decline, there's a mini column shrinkage with age here and here. But what we have in schizophrenia is a relatively a plateau or a slight increase that's mainly to do with sex differences in those brains. But, so this is more like a plateau uh, in schizophrenia. So we have this model that somehow these abnormalities that one sees in schizophrenia, um, which might involve abnormalities of semantic organization, semantic processing, uh, interrelationships, and, and uh, um, uh, the separation of, of self and other, which is what a lot of, uh, sort of hallucinations and things are about, um, may relate somehow to this sort of structural abnormality at the very small scale. Um, uh, and these are some quotations which I've put up. Actually, I'm, I've previously been interested in the differences between different kinds of um, art or poetry or, um, or um, uh, uh, pathology, so-called pathology, because there seems to be some kind of structure in, in, uh, in communication with someone who has schizophrenia. It's just not quite as we would tend to normally expect it. So it is as if these, this semantic organization is slightly, it's just slightly off. So this uh, description here, yes indeed, for the organization of work there are therefore drafts of hours and calendars and, and a calendar of the draft of seconds, of minutes and hours, of howling and ticking of the wind. You call that time force, hence gale force, and so on. Um, uh, this is somebody who has schizophrenia and they're clearly sort of merging ideas of weather and time. Um, uh, uh, this is actually poetry and this is uh, an artificial language program, all of which seem to have some kind of structure in them, but a, a little bit oblique or, or obscure to us in some ways. Uh, and, the, and the kind of model that we have in mind is that in schizophrenia, there's, there's effectively this early plateau. So at the kind of age where people actually begin to um, have an onset of illness, um, there's, there is a loss of minicom spacing. So we don't get that full expansion, and then we don't get that full plasticity in the system. Uh, and, and, and there's... Uh, 
there's some more data which supports this kind of this kind of model. So let's sort of wind our way back now to those uh, species comparisons and things like that. And uh, in particular, I'm I'm thinking in terms of these uh, developmental curves and trajectories, which are interesting. And I, and, and I sort of just just to throw it out to you, really, um, I'm taking as a as a as a sort of model of how one might approach such things from this kind of study by Ponce de Leon, who's part of uh, Christoph Solikoff's group, I think, who looked at, um, who was looking at reconstructions of uh, cranial anatomy for Neanderthals and, uh, and, uh, and humans and chimpanzees. Um, uh, and, and really, I'm not gonna go into the details of, of, of this study, um, except to, to show that, that, that their interpretation, her interpretation of the, the data that she could get from these juvenile uh, Neanderthal specimens uh, and others was that there were differences in growth rate, which might be very important um, in various ways in terms of uh, how we interpret sort of um, um, uh, evolutionary processes, perhaps. So, so, the, so the conclusions were that uh, there may be a higher postnatal growth rate in, in, in human species compared to chimpanzees. Um, uh, and that this results in an energetic cost that's borne by the mother, thus requiring large late maturing mothers. mothers. Um, uh, and the modern human early brain growth rates uh, seem to be slower than Neanderthals, which have these famously quite large brains. Um, and that might look something like actually that, that curve that I showed you for the autism, the sort of early rapid uh, uh, overgrowth. Um, and it looks as if therefore that modern humans have a sort of slowed down rate of development. Now I think this is the kind of thing that we can sort of we can sort of think about uh, in, if we get if we extract this information about um, developmental processes on the microcircuitry and the organization of different regions of the brain. So for example, this area again, which was to do with language uh, association cortex uh, about here in the human brain, um, if we look at how that changes in our, in our um, these are only snapshots, of course, because this is from post-mortem data. Uh, if we look at how it changes in our population, we see that um, the younger subjects, as we would expect, start off with uh, low mini-column width, and it increases uh, and then de decreases again with the typical aging effect late in life. Whereas we only have a few chimpanzees that we know the ages for that so far, but we seem to show uh, a steady decline. Um, and we've seen that in, in another area of the brain as well. So. Uh, this is what this this is a sort of contrast, if you like, to the in terms of the curves. I mean, certainly there's no way one one would in, one could interpret this as a, as an arch here. It's clearly going down. It might be going very down very rapidly and plateauing. Um, but the idea is that there's a sort of peak, if you like, or a plateau, which starts in humans relatively late uh, in development, maybe around 20 years old. And we know that the brain goes on changing and developing um, quite late. It's certainly in some areas of the brain. Uh, in humans, and we'd expect this to be one of those areas, perhaps, which would quite have, a, have quite a late uh, sort of developmental peak. Um, whereas in chimpanzees, uh, there's no evidence that that, that goes on and that happens any later. Um, and then if we if we try and relate that to uh, a measure of brain size, I'm sorry again, the, the the reproduction here is not very good, but I photocopied this from Dean, one of Dean Falk's uh, articles, um, and she presented data on uh, typical brain size expansion in chimpanzees here against age in years uh, and uh, in humans here. Obviously, the human brain is much larger, but the point is where does this sort of plateau or where does the peak sort of seem to be? And so I've, I've identified with the red arrow where it roughly looks like in the humans. You could put it up here, perhaps, and where it roughly looks like in the chimpanzees. Um, and you can see that in chimpanzees, there seems to be quite a close match between what we just showed there for that region of um, auditory cortex. 
an early peak, effectively, which, which is similar to the peak in total brain size, whereas in humans we have this delay in this particular subregion of the brain. So we think we might have a kind of hierarchical, hierarchical development which involves um, different developmental rates in different regions, which is very important for how the functions uh, develop. And there's other data as well. Uh, I'm particularly uh, keen on, on, on this part, which is the, the, there's some evidence for asynchronous synaptogenesis, the formation of synapses uh, in different regions of the brain. Um, uh, and it looks as if uh, in uh, some monkey species, there aren't really differences between regions, between association cortex regions, what the prefrontal cortex is, all these language-associated areas, for example, and primary areas such as the primary sensory area or the area that does that first bit of acoustic processing, the primary auditory cortex, or the visual cortex at the back. So there's no difference in, in, in the rate of uh, synapse formation in early development uh, in, in some monkey species, but we see, uh, well, no, others see uh, in humans that there's a difference. Um, and then also I've put in many kind of expansions. So we can sort of, potentially one could build up a model which, which, which separates groups of uh, animals in this, in this manner. And uh, the, some of the early steps that we've made in this kind of direction are with these chimpanzee-human comparisons, um, not looking at developmental rates in this case, but just looking, if you like, at what might be the outcome of that, which is um, differences between regions. So this, again, is mini-column width. And what you can see, the humans are the yellow bars here. And you can see across different regions of the brain with the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, this high executive functioning region, which is associated with IQ, being the, being the maximum, having the widest mini-columns. We see this range, this, uh, this difference between the different uh, regions. And what's interesting about the chimpanzees, what I didn't expect was, was actually a selective enlargement of the prefrontal uh, mini-column anatomy, microcircuits, but um, very little difference between those other regions. So this might have something to do with those differences in terms of um, developmental rates and, pro uh, and, and the developmental profile, if you like, across regions. Uh, and um, in terms of how we think about, for example, prefrontal cortex function, having this high associative uh, capacity where it basically feeds off all sorts of information. Uh, this, is a, this is a sort of wiring diagram actually from uh, monkey brain, illustrating all the different subparts of the prefrontal area here. This is the back of the brain here, and this is the bottom. Um, and all these arrows illustrate um, tracks that have been traced and, and, and uh, um, proof of connections between all these different regions and these areas of prefrontal cortex here. So, so the reason that, that, if you like, there is this higher cognitive capacity in this area can only be to do with how it's connected up with all these other areas that are supporting it. And so one might imagine that if there's a, different, a difference in the rates of development of those different regions, you'll build up that information differently and potentially to build up different capabilities um, uh, in different species. Uh, and therefore, of course, in humans, that gives us the capacity for these very complex um, sorts of ways of thinking uh, and analyses that we have to be capable of, where we can separate the dimensions of, uh, that might be important to us in some kind of social cognitive um, network and, and, and uh, make decisions as to what we might do as a result. Um, and just one word on, on what, has to, what, what is essential if we're going to sort of take that kind of work forward and, and, and try and relate it in more detail to, to, to functions and abilities that we could see developing in life um, is, is based on the idea that we can actually find kind of proxies of these measures in, uh, in vivo, in, in MRI scanning. Um, and this is an illustration of uh, some of the latest technology. This is diffusion tensor imaging, um, and people can, will, can spend hours talking just about how that works. Um, and I'll try and summarize it here, not being an expert, by saying that when, uh, for example, as with columns here, or when there are tracts in the brain which have a dominant uh, direction of diffusion of water 
um, uh, across them, you'll get a signal which effectively um, represents that dominant direction. So, and, and then if there's a sort of, if there's a lot of fluidity and space in the system so that motor molecules can go in any direction, you get this, you get, you get uh, diffusion in any direction. And these differences in signals uh, enable you to do all sorts of beautiful track tracing and current techniques. But um, more recently, there's, there's evidence that you can see this in, in, in the cortex, in gray matter, not just in the white matter tracts. And you can see um, in early development, when those cells are very tightly packed, as I showed you from that photo very early on, you can see that there's, a, uh, there's an alignment, a radial alignment of this signal in the cortex here which is parallel to those columns. So we think this might be a kind of proxy, a signal related to these columns. And that drops off um, in this data from 2002 um, when, the, when the cortex gets more mature and effectively there's more spacing between those um, microcircuits. But we now think that with uh, recent techniques, and in fact we've, a, we have a paper in press uh, recently, that um, you can see this in the human, in the adult human brain. So we actually, it's very dark, I'm afraid, here, but this is a, if you zoom in on this area of cortex here, you can see this radial organization of these red vectors here, which, which effectively this diffusion signal, or, or derive from this diffusion signal, and we think that this will hopefully be a way forward to try and measure these kinds of microcircuits and their organization and spacing uh, in vivo in the future. So that's it. Thanks very much for your attention.